All right, what's up, guys? This is Nate from Rooted in Revelation, uh, where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation. And with us uh, for the second time is Jimmy Lee, and he's going to be with us. We're actually going to be talking about a pretty exciting uh, thing Jimmy thought would be a fun thing to talk about. We're going to be talking about how the Old Testament directs our philosophy of evidence. So this will be a fun uh, discussion, but before before we go any further, um, we're going to have Jimmy open us up in prayer. And uh, then he'll share a little bit about himself briefly for those that haven't heard him before or new listeners. And we'll go ahead. So, Jimmy, why don't you pray? Okay, thank you. Dear God, we just pray, Lord, that our discussion will be helpful. Uh, Lord God, we pray, Lord, that all that we do, we want to be for your glory. We pray, Lord, even in our apologetics. Father, we pray, Lord, that this topic would be enriching and yet at the same time be practical. And at the same time also cause us to have a doxological apologetics where the Son is glorified. Lord God, give us a Christ-centered apologetics and even one that is robust. And also as well, Lord, that we would have one that we love you more. And as a result, that because we honor you in our faithful, you would use this even to bring about the conversion of those that we are witnessing to. Thank you for this discussion. Bless Nate and bless this uh, podcast rooted in Revelation. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, brother. Yeah, so Jimmy... Thank you for that. And for new listeners, who are you, Jimmy? Yeah, uh, I'm Jimmy. So I'm a pastor. Uh, been pastoring now officially for uh, going on nine years, over nine years now. Um, so my desire has always been, um, besides pastoring, has always been the desire to evangelize and to disciple. And a big component of that has always been for myself a passion for apologetics. Um, specifically with presuppositional apologetics or covenantal apologetics, um, where we defend the faith as kind of articulated and laid out um, with the father presupp apologetics uh, with Cornelius Van Til. Um, and, and specifically for me, even with Van Til, like more of maybe Bonson's way of interpretation or method or outlook in the perspective of presupp, because I know presupp is becoming um, less and less monolithic also as well. Um, so yeah, my passion has always been, um, just to evangelize and to disciple. And of course, a big component of that is, uh, pressing the antithesis with the world. There's a different worldview, there's different beliefs and how do we, um, negotiate that specifically? We, we don't compromise and we want to share the truth. And, um, I think I met you, Nate, is through the reform presuppositional apologetics group, um, where I'm an admin, um, thankfully, um, uh, I think I'm now the only uh, Baptist guy. Uh, all the admins are, are Presbyterian or became Presbyterian. So they've been super merciful and graceful. And I've appreciated you, Nate, just with your show um, and also even your contribution and thoughts and, and even guiding the discussion with that. So I'm honored to be here. Uh, Nate. Uh, thank you so much, Jimmy. And you're much appreciated too. And yeah, I'm so thankful for the presuppositional apologetics uh, group as well. And for the listeners, you ought to check that out. You can find that on Facebook. I'll, I'll try to provide a link for you guys. So you'll be able to kind of click and let's go right to it. Um, but thank you, Jimmy. Yeah, that's really um, encouraging to hear. You know, sometimes we're our own worst critics. Sometimes I, I re-listen to these. I'm like, ah, Nate, what are you saying? But hey, as long as it's blessing other people. And, and I often say, man, even if, even if our, what we do, reaches this one person either to stir them up onto good works or or convince someone of the christian faith or whatever the case bring a backslidden christian back um if that's one person praise god that's way worth it i'd take that over tens of thousands of people that aren't really taking it 
serious to heart, you know? So Amen. I appreciate that. that brother. Yeah. Yeah. That's my outlook too. I enjoy when whatever few or many, if even if it's a few, if it's faithful to the truth, if someone is discipled or, or saved, I mean, praise the Lord. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's about uh, quantity, not quality, or uh, quality, not quantity, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so we're going to be talking about uh, how the Old Testament directs our philosophy of evidence. So Jimmy, how about you want to open this up and we'll hop in? Yeah, um, I think what prompted me, I thought will be a good discussion of this was because, um, as you know, there's always on social media, especially this last year, discussion about in people's objection to presuppositional apologetics. Um, that's actually got me to think about maybe uh, we, you, uh, I know we're going to talk about this more later on, but you know, presuppositional apologetics is not against evidence per se. And even from Van Til, especially in his book, Common Grace, he talks about often the issue is the discussion is issue of philosophy of evidence. Um, like it's what we bring with us as our grid or as our um, classes, so to speak, that we put on to look our worldview lens of interpreting data, facts, and, and all of that. And I thought in light of that, um, because I've seen a lot of objection, and we, we see this in Facebook and apologetics group too, where sometimes people say things like, oh, well, I can't be a presuppositionist because when you look at Jesus, he uses evidence. Then it got me thinking a little bit deeper. It is true, Jesus has done signs, wonders, and miracles, but that doesn't actually refute or even touch the essence of presuppositionalism because we do, as we'll talk later on, we do believe in the use of evidence but there's a limit and also it's proper place. But also I think for me backing up a little further is I actually think when Jesus gives evidence with his miracles, signs and wonders, it was never done in a vacuum. It was never done in a vacuum. And actually, I would actually say it was done in a context where with the Jews of his day, with his disciples and with Jesus himself, it was done in context of the Old Testament as God's word that interpret, that explains, and also even points towards Jesus, that he is definitely Messiah. So I thought that might be um, good that we look at this, because oftentimes, Van Til himself and many others, when we often talk about philosophy of evidence, we could get really philosophical, and there is a place for that. Um, I've appreciated a lot of guys that are very philosophical uh, within the group that I've learned, um, other presuppositions, with refining, for instance, our laws of logic, and even define, especially the analytic guys, defining what we mean by things, and also the rigors of logic, and also even discussion about even epistemology um, and different uh, epistemological views. So there's places for all those things, but I also think one thing that might be missing is actually talking more biblically. We, we confess that we must be biblical in our view of philosophy of evidence, but also I want to press this a little further by actually saying the Old Testament itself was what actually helps us interpret what Jesus was doing as evidence, and I think when we talk about this, maybe some of us might not be, as believers, more inclined to talk about rationalism or, or um, foundationalism and, and all the various discussion about epistemology, which is important, and there's a place for that. But maybe this is also practical for maybe when we go to our church, like the grandmas or the grandpas in our church, or even a younger person, because we all desire as believers to be deeper in the Word of God. And I actually think even for most of us that might be more philosophically inclined, to be aware that the Old Testament is a big part of Jesus's philosophy of evidence when he presented various signs, wonders, and miracles. It actually makes even our apologetics even more robust and also deals at the same time an objection that some people have, like, 
simply saying Jesus did miracle refutes presuppositionalism and evidentialism is true. We could back up and say, what is the philosophy of evidence, the criteria of evidence that Jesus was even operating and even the Pharisees was operating that makes sense of this. And when we go deeper in that way, we, I think it becomes more affirmation of presuppositional apologetics, but also I think it also helps us deal with um, how we should definitely interpret the evidence. The worldview lens should be that of the Bible, specifically um, before Jesus' time, antecedent to his time, the Old Testament itself. Um, did I explain that clear? Just maybe like what I desire for today to, to demonstrate? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great introduction, Jimmy. And I think I'm excited to hear what you got to say more about this because I've, I've often seen these same kind of things, uh, you know, uh, I remember Jonathan McClatchy, I think it is when him and James White, and I think a bunch of other guys had kind of that panel, uh, Richard Howe, I think was on there as well. Yeah. They kind of had that panel discussion of the different methodologies yeah. that apologists use and, and I think I'm sorry, Jonathan, if you ever hear this, I, McLatchy, is it? Mc, I can't I even say. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive me, brother, if you ever hear this, um, but we'll just call you Johnny M. Um, you know, when he presented his case, um, you know, he used a lot of like how they would test the Old Testament prophets and it's mm -hmm. if, if their things would come to pass that they prophesied about or um, using those kind of things. And, and I like what you're saying is because it's like, okay, yeah, that's true. But like, what's behind that even? Like, what's the right perspective and lens worldview? That we can actually look at that and make sense of that you know what i mean uh, i think that's a great discussion to be had and i think if anything it'll give the presuppositional apologetics uh a more robust nuanced perspective on how we're actually talking about these things yeah amen amen yeah that's a good point yeah so um do you want me to hop and we'll get started on here with the questions yeah. um okay so jimmy was van till cornelius van till and presuppositionalists today are they against christian evidences yeah i think uh, i think before we even talk more about how do we even deal with this i, I think we need to deal with this uh, right away because uh um why we want to talk about this is because we constantly hear this that uh van till and uh bonson or even presuppositionalists in general that we are against evidence um i actually want to uh, for this portion and maybe later on I can make this into a more smoother outline for people to see the documentation. Um, I think the presuppositionists, um, specifically with Van Til, uh, I know sometimes there's a guy named Gordon Clark that people would also say presuppositions. I want to actually narrow it down to focus on Van Til just because this is the guy that that influenced me um, Well, my apologetics methodology. I, I think when you read Van Til carefully and also read his um, disciples, that is those that were his immediate students and immediate student by that I mean, those that actually sat in his um, class when he was a professor at Westminster. Uh, you'll see that very clearly that they were never against evidence per se. They were against presenting evidence a certain way, a way that is autonomous, a way that does not account for a biblical philosophy of facts or even a good philosophy of facts. So mm -hmm. they were, but then because of that importance of how one's philosophy of evidence or one's epistemology shapes how we interpret evidence. Because of that, I think we, some people then interpret that meaning to say Van Til doesn't care about evidence. And there's a part where he didn't write about it um, in terms of Christian evidences as much. And he's even admitted that he might not be the best guy with some historical evidence. There's guys in the West 
the rest of the Westminster faculty that's done a better job. But I just want to mention that there's a book for those that are interested. I believe now it's out of print um, by a guy named Tom Nor Nortaro. That's called Van Til and Evidences. It's an older book. Um, it's actually, I believe it's based upon his THM thesis. He's a student of Van Til. He actually argues that there is a place for evidence that Van Til is not against. I'm just gonna read real quick from this, um, just uh, that he said this, and this is from his 1980 book, um, Van Til and the Use of Evidences on page eight. He said that both friends and foes of Van Til have commonly attributed this outlook to him. That is the idea that there's no evidence uh, or there's no place for evidence in Christian apologetics. And he says, and perhaps that consensus is no more pronounced in the mistaken assumption that Van Til allowed no room for the use of evidence in defending Christianity. So you see, in, way back in 1980, this is before I was even born, um, maybe I'm showing my age here, um, it shows that even early on, his disciples, they've acknowledged that, no, there is a place. They reject that, okay? And then I just want to go on um, to say Van Til himself, uh, this is now from Van Til's book himself. Um, this is in his book called uh, Apologetics, which was originally based upon his syllabus. Ours, ours like that more than even his book, Defense of the Faith, because I thought it was the most compact written, book written form to explain his apologetics methodology. Um, he's going to be saying, uh, this is from his, this is from a 1947 syllabus um, that, I, that I read way back when I was a younger guy, saved this footnote ever since, on page three on his original, uh, page three of his syllabus, again, 1947 version. He says, Christian theism must be defended against non-theistic science. Evidences, then, is a subdivision of apologetics in the broader sense of the word. So I think that keyword, let me say this again, this is me repeating this quote. Evidence, then, is a subdivision of apologetics in the broader sense of the word and is coordinated with apologetics in the more limited sense of the word. And then elsewhere, he also mentioned this. He said, evidence deals largely with historical while apologetics deal with the philosophical aspect. Each has his own work to do, but they should be in touch with one another. So I think this is a really profound statement where he sees there is a role in his view of apologetics that maybe deals with a philosophical or the philosophy of evidence or the epistemological or the metaphysical or the meta-ethical. And therefore there is a place of evidence, historical evidence, but we don't talk about that unless we resolve the world issue, worldview first. And I think the analogy I'll just give real quick is um, even practically when people go to court, when lawyers argue about whether or not this person is guilty, there's a sense there's even a presuppositional consciousness. You see, for instance, lawyers are keen to root out, rule away a bad jury. Those that say, hey, this guy's obviously guilty if he's been arrested and was smacked around by the cops. Obviously, no judge and jury would want a guy with that bad philosophy of evidence, right? So you see both prosecutor and defense attorney will rule out certain guys. And often sometimes you see even cases where because the evidence is overwhelming, someone's guilty, sometimes you see even prosecutor and uh, um, the attorney, the defense attorney would even talk ahead of time, realize, okay, let's talk about what is the philosophy of evidence ahead of time. What is the criteria of what is admissible and what is not admissible evidence? And we're just saying when it comes to defending Christianity, if lives are on the line, it's so important that people talk about philosophy of evidence in court. How much more when we deal with apologetics, with issue of salvation, hell, and eternity? We should definitely talk about philosophy of evidence. So I guess all I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is to say he's not against evidence. He's for uh, evidence. But we need to talk about the philosophy of evidence, the criteria of evidence, and, and be biblical first and have a good uh, philosophy of evidence. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, that's really helpful. And if I got it correctly, it pretty much it's, it's, you know, evidence isn't a standalone thing. I know Van Til yeah. often would say, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a brute fact, like a fact that's just a fact. Uh, you know, I've, I often uh, hear, I've, you know, you hear statements like, well, I'm a man of science. I just go with the facts. It's like, well, what do you mean by fact? Because a fact has to be interpreted. A fact has to be seen within a grid or a, a philosophical grid or a theological grid, whatever the case, they're all, they're all kind of intertwined, like you mentioned, Jimmy, how Van Til wants to say these shouldn't be separated, um, you know, disciplines. They should be in touch with one another. Um, so I, I think that's super helpful to realize that, yeah, there is there's definitely evidence, right? And we need to deal with it and we need to speak about it. But I love the importance of what Van Til presses with this and what you're saying, Jimmy, is well, we have to start with the right presupposition. We have to have the right outlook before we can make sense of evidence itself, especially you know, think of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, you know, we interpret scripture with scripture, right? So we don't interpret scripture with postmodern philosophy or, you know, whatever the case. Um, we come to the scripture as Christians, humble, seeking to see what God says about his word, what God says about the world, what God says about himself. And that needs to be the proper lens by which we view everything else. Right. And so, yeah, that was just my rant of summarization, but am I right? Am, am I yeah. seeing this the way? Okay. Just making sure. Yeah. Um, so, so Jimmy, I guess if we move forward from that first question, how about, you know, um, so you mentioned, you just quoted uh, Tom Natoro, was it correct? Yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm bad yeah. at pronouncing Yeah, me too. So you're, we're in the same boat. <laughs> but uh, so uh, your second question here, I don't know if there's the same one you mentioned, probably not. Correct. Yeah, I know it's a little bit rougher. I think the question was uh, like, are there other presuppositions? That right. Okay. Besides, yeah. Yeah. My, my apologies. I just didn't uh, know if that's something you dealt with already, but let's go with it. Okay. So Jimmy, can you quote some presuppositionalists that see the importance of a biblical philosophy of evidence? Yeah. So this is, uh, yeah. And that's the question um, is besides just, you know, am I just quote mining, just finding a few quote here and there? Um, by the way, um, I know I mentioned about Tom Narto. Some people might say, okay, well, what if he's just a random guy. Could he be representative of Van Til? Um, Tom Narto was actually one of the guys that took Van Til's place um, as the professor of apologetics at um, Westminster. Um, after uh, Van Til retired, I think Van Til retired, but he still taught some classes here and there or, or just like certain seminars. Um, so I think there's a sense where Van Til acknowledged even with his thesis um, about the place of evidence, it's not as if these guys are writing these things about, oh, there's place of evidence after Van Til died, okay? Um, but also, uh, you know, this is where I think most of us know Bonson more than, um, perhaps most of us have read Van Til more, or correction, Bonson more than Van Til. Um, in his uh, article about the impropriety of evidentially arguing for the resurrection, um, I just wanna mention that, again, reinforcing this point that philosophy of evidence is so important and to be biblical about this, I'm just going to be quoting from this essay of his. Um, as of this moment, I think the Covenant Media Foundation, which housed a lot of Bonson's material, um, is currently down with the article section. Um, but I, you can find it online if you look at it, and specifically answers in Genesis. You just type in Google search, the impropriety of evidentially arguing for the resurrection. And um, this is actually a bit 
a juxtaposition towards those who are more evidential and classical. I'm not trying to bash them, but um, sometimes the way to present discussion, um, I think there's strong evidence for the resurrection, but the way they go about it, I think sometimes leaves room for even critique of it to be even more robust and even more biblical, uh, biblically faithful. So this is what he says in this essay, and I'm quoting now, quote, by trying to build up a proof of the resurrection from the unbiased grounds, the Christian allows his witness to be absorbed into pagan framework and reduces the antithesis between himself and a skeptic to a matter of a few particulars. The Christian worldview differs from that of unbelief at every point when the skeptic is consistent with his avowed principles. And it is only the only outlook which can account for factuality at all. And I'm quoting here as to say that if we look at the world from a different worldview other than biblical, and if we were to be consistent, and of course, many people are inconsistent with their worldview, including believers at times who could be hypocritical or we don't live that out. But with non-believers, if you press that, for instance, a worldview that's atheistic where there's no God, then it reduces even the point of even looking at history. Um, everything is just out order of chaos. I mean, why even bother studying about human beings, uh, the history of humans, if we're nothing more than a big biological carbon bag that's just, you know, rolled around with a bunch of neurons and dust. We're nothing more than what um, Jeff Durbin often say, we're nothing more than cosmic stardust, right? So of course it reduces that. And I think even in this essay, because and I when back when I was more evidential, remember when I was in college campuses arguing for the resurrection was true. I remember encountering some atheists that would say things that were more philosophically attuned, say, well, maybe that's just a one chance in millions of years, a freak accident. After all, if there's many freak accidents that happen that a primordial soup, so to speak, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying here, a primordial soup could evolve to become a cell to become an, or, uh, uh, or an organism, an organism with many cells to eventually have tissues and organs, how will we then say we would never have a freak accident of someone dying and suddenly raised from the dead three days later? So of course, if you have that, your philosophy of evidence that all things are possible because of a random chance, obviously then your philosophy of evidence would always dismiss every case of Christian miracle because you're saying, okay, this is just a freak accident uh, with that. So in light of this, I think we must ask then, okay, in Jesus' day, when he presents these evidence, we must ask this, I think, for the purpose of historical honesty, and also to be, whereas believers saying, in Jesus' day, what was his philosophy of evidence that he used? And I know it might be hard-pressed to say, okay, I know today a lot of discussion of philosophy of evidence could be talking about, you know, a Kantian um, metaphysics and also um, epistemology is it, how do we bridge the nominal and the phenomenal? And yes, those discussions are important. But going back, we might even be um, almost be historically inaccurate to read that back in Jesus' day and talk about, okay, these categories. But I think a better way is actually to walk from what is historically antecedent before and saying, this is what was Jesus' philosophy of evidence with all the signs, wonders, and miracles he did was actually the Old Testament. Um, so this is actually where the Old Testament is a lens to interpret this. And so I know there's even um, evidentialists and classical guys that would engage in dealing with messianic prophecy. For instance, there is um, our more charismatic brother, Michael Brown, is one of the guys that are, is a leading scholar to argue for this. So what I'm trying to do is, is something similar to what they're doing of saying the messianic prophecy is proves Christianity and Jesus Christ inside. But I'm actually going even more deeper by actually saying this is not just only a few direct verses of prophecies in the New, uh, Old Testament. I'm going to say the whole entire Old Testament is our whole philosophy of evidence that interpret everything 
where Jesus is at and everything else. And even later on, as we go through this, I'm going to go over some acronym called evidences. That's to make it easier to remember that how the Old Testament is not just only direct prophecy saying where he was born. It's now it's the robust, the whole entire thing, including typology. When Jesus did certain things um, that we see in this whole bigger pic picture is even more robust than even um, a messianic apologist kind of guy that might be classical evidential. It's even more robust than that that everything Jesus did, the details of the New Testament, divorced from the Old Testament, we would never see the beautiful wonders that Jesus Christ, everything he did was so intentional that he was Messiah himself. Even when he wasn't doing signs, wonders, and miracles, when he was teaching, when he was talking, where he was at, the details of his environment shows us he must be the Messiah. So that must be our philosophy of evidence and interpreting. Of course, part of that is God is, is, is real. He's sovereign. Um, and I'm going further with this by saying in Reformed theology, we believe in the doctrine of progressive revelation. I love that until he brings in a trinity to deal with the issue of the one and the many. And I'm doing the same program he's doing to say, let's take our doctrine, Reformed doctrine, a progressive revelation. Um, let's take a Reformed uh, doctrine that even we believe that the whole scripture is Christ-centered. And now let's take this apply and say, this is where our epistemology, our philosophy of evidence um, when it comes to the New Testament data, we're going to be even more consistently reformed and more consistently biblical in light of that. Yeah, that's really great, Jimmy. Um, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking about covenant theology and I'm thinking about uh, biblical theology, um, a biblical theology of what evidence is. And, and you mentioned the type, the typology of Christ. And, and I was thinking of all the types and shadows of Christ's fulfillment of of so much in the Old Testament, everything pointed forward to him through, like you mentioned, throughout progressive redemptive history. Um, you see types and shadows of the coming reality of the Son of God that's going to be the second Adam, who sets everything right that was set wrong, you know, as Adam represented us. So Christ will, you know, represent a new humanity, a new creation he'll establish. And yeah, I, I just think of, you know, people like G.K. Beale and Benjamin Glad and, and the biblical theology they bring about of about talking about the eschatology in the latter days and how Christ is actually inaugurated. You know, it's the, the inauguration of the new covenant. Everything is just it's insane. You know, it's insane how Christ really is a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament and not just little pieces like you mentioned, not just not just the little prophecies about where the Messiah would be born. I mean, the whole ceremonial system, civil, I mean, uh, the fulfill that he, he fulfills the moral law and his obedience to the father and the covenant of redemption, you could say. And, and you see the Trinitarian God working out his salvation throughout that revelation as time goes. And Hey, we are rooted in revelation, right? Not the book of mm -hmm. revelation, but <laughs> the yeah, Bible, I mean, right? Uh, the whole revelation, the Amen. whole revelation, the pound. Amen. <laughs> that's right. But, um, yeah, am I am I following correct? Do you think what I'm saying matches with? Okay, just want to make sure. Um, okay, so Jimmy, um, so you're proposing that the Old Testament is an apologetic or a philosophy of evidence when arguing for Jesus as a Messiah. Why? Yeah. So you know we and think asking this is more of like there's even more reason we you know in talking about this. Uh, I think first and foremost. Uh, we need to believe that God's word is always clear um, to the point that people at that moment when they needed it. Um, I really like John Frame defining um, like even the sufficiency of scripture of saying scripture is always sufficient. Um, of course, we have more books in the New Testament era now 
a church age than, for instance, when the Jews or the Hebrews have just left Exodus, but it's sufficient for that moment um, that it is. And of course, God has decreed now it's 66 books and um, with that. So I think first and foremost, one of the reasons why I want to do this is first and foremost, there's no neutrality as a believer. We, If we're a believer, if we're not going to be intellectually schizophrenic, we need to realize the Old Testament is God's word. It's self-attesting as God's word. Um, maybe we could even have, I think maybe you probably have other discussions about God's word is self-attesting. Um, you know, like uh, even different precept guys you've interviewed, um, Ricky, Rodan, and, and, you know, um, you know, uh, Mr. Oliphant and, and things like that. Part of that is we always believe God's word is self-evidencing, but it's not caricature self-evidencing. Um, even as it's self-evidencing, it's true that what God's word says you should know. But I also think when you think about it, it's a little bit more manifold, glorious, beautiful. Uh, even one of the things I see is even the prophecy it predicts and also even all these typologies and shadows shows um, the beauty. So one of the reasons why I want to go over this is because why it's a, a, a word of God is philosophy of evidence, the Old Testament is number one, Old Testament is God's word. And I think number two, for those of us that are reformed, there's reformed doctrine that reformed distinctive that has implication for why the Old Testament is philosophy of evidence. Um, like I said, the word of God is self-attesting. And number two, we believe that um, from many passages, um, that there is a doctrine of uh, progressive revelation. For instance, in Hebrews 1, 3, it talks about there's in former times, prophets and everything has spoken, but now Christ is revealing God um, himself. So I think in light of all this, we see there's a progressive unfolding. Um, we sometimes see discussions of debate between guys that are more dispensational and maybe even different kinds of uh, covenantal. And even now there's even other categories stuff like that where sometimes um, our discussions uh, with dispensational, uh, more reformed guys would be like, do we have New Testament priority? And of course, dispensational say, Old Testament must have priority. And I think um, for me, sometimes I think that misses that. My opinion is sometimes um, both, every, every believer have some kind of New Testament priority where we read back and we say, even the dispensational guys would say, hey, there's certain things we don't do anymore ceremonial because New Testament versus say, it's the shadow. So Phil, we don't um, live these things. But at the same time, I also believe that even the character, some people say like the dispensational guys would say, hey, the covenantal guys, um, they don't read the Old Testament priority. And I would actually say that's not fully true because there's a lot of guys that do uh, reform, uh, guys that do biblical theology. We think of Voss um, and, and the guys that, the father of biblical theology. So there is a sense where I think I'm going to use a term that is used more by, oh man, I, how could I forget his name? I've got his name, right? I can't believe I forgot his name. Um, he uses a term called antecedent theology. You guys could probably Google that, um, which is saying that whenever we look at redemptive history, this is doing biblical theology, wherever any juncture of redemptive history in the Bible, we always ask what came before, what was taught before, and scripture is often more, any moment of more revelation of God is building upon things that was revealed before. I mean, even with teaching right now my church systematic theology, um, uh, I try to teach in a biblical theology way of like saying, let's go from Genesis to Revelation. Let's just say the attribute that God um, does not change. There, and I was discovering that, wow, you know what? There's a lot of verses that talks about already in the Old Testament. That even in the New Testament, if there's less verses, it's not as if it's not important. Is the New Testament is already assuming you know your Old Testament as theology, your antecedent theology, if you will. So it's building upon that. So for instance, um, God never changes. We say impassibility. 
Um, the Old Testament teaches that, but when it comes to the New Testament, now it's doing other things, building upon that foundation to say, Christ himself does not change. So it's not as if to say there's no, you know, it doesn't matter for the New Testament. No, they're building upon what's revealed earlier, but now teaching further truth that the Trinity is also one of the members of Christ is unchanged. So I'm doing the same thing what they're doing to say, when it comes to interpreting um, our evidence with the New Testament, what signs, wonders, and miracles, we must go to that because of the doctrine of progressive revelation. Um, why we want that as um, why we want to use Old Testament as philosophy of evidence. And the other one is also, I think, um, in, in our belief system, we believe that the Bible teaches that the Old Testament was predicting Christ. When you look at, for instance, I'm going to just cite this real quick. Uh, Luke 24, Jesus on the world in Maze was saying, hey, these three parts of the Old Testament, uh, what we call it in the Old Testament, what is Jewish scripture, the, the law of Moses, the prophets and the writings, these three sections that even the Jews recognize today, what they call the Tanakh. Um, in Hebrew, that's saying the Torah, and then the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and the Keti'im, which is the writing. That category, the law, prophets, and writings, Jesus acknowledged that and said, all these things point to him. So in light of a do reformed doctrine that all these things is pointing towards Christ, this is one of the reasons why we must. Um, this should shape the way we do apologetics, and it's unfortunate, I think this is um, a positive cr criticism, a constructive criticism to, towards our evidential brothers to say, hey, even when we talk about these things, let's bring more of the Old Testament in shaping how we interpret what Jesus was doing. There, I think there's a sense they're doing it, but often I think they put it more in a context of courtroom settings of evidences, but let's not be autonomous, but say, let's do this the way Jesus and his disciples would have done it. Yeah, that's great, Jimmy. And Man, yeah, I, I'm just smirking because I love this uh, conversation because I love biblical theology and and yeah. and seeing the implications of how that's that's playing out in this conversation with you is is pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah, I, it it's uh, yeah, Jesus, it, you know, he's the he's the fulfillment of all the old and 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 going back on kind of talking a little bit, I want to make a comment of how you mentioned, you know, dispensationalists say Old Testament has priority and then. Um, then falsely accused covenant theology of saying, oh, you guys, you, you take the new too much and you don't take into consideration the old, which is interesting because I usually see it kind of in a, an opposite direction being in covenant theology where I say, well, um, the better you understand the Old Testament, the better you're going to understand the New Testament. So that's strange, but I have heard that from dispensationalists. I love you guys. You, you're Christian, so don't get me. I'm uh, not saying that at all, but like uh, Jimmy says, a, a loving uh, constructive critique to say, well, that's kind of a caricature because, um, I mean, you read guys like Beale, Benjamin yeah. Glad, some of these top-notch guys, Voss, I mean, they're going to agree with you. Um, and maybe what you're saying they're doing, they're actually not doing. <laughs> um, I think I, I was telling my reformed Baptist buddy, Nick, who's not able to make it to this episode, but, uh, we talk a lot about covenant theology. And one of those things we talk about often is, you know, uh, I say you're more, you're probably more persuaded to become a Baptist if you, if you're a new believer and you start in the New Testament and you don't really understand the Old Testament. But if you, once you start understanding the Old Testament later, I, I jokingly say, then you'll become a Presbyterian because then you'll see how the continuity that does exist with the old into the new. Um, and of course, listeners, you can disagree with me. That's fine. I know people do anyway, but, uh, and Jimmy may even too, but that's fine. We love each other, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to say that's excellent points that you brought out. So 
You want to go ahead and hop into the next one there then? Yes. Okay. So Jimmy, can you give us some examples of how the Old Testament does this as a philosophy of evidence? Like uh, for for Jesus as the Messiah, what would that look like? Like how, how does this play out? Yeah. So um, for this next portion, this, this is going to become a Bible study um, with that. We'll open some scripture. Um, yeah. So this part is going to be more like in concrete examples, like how does the Old Testament actually help us to see even more evidences when we're consciously trying to say um, that the Old Testament should be our philosophy of evidences? Um, I've developed an acronym uh, called evidences. It's, uh, you know, maybe there's an irony. Um, we're talking about evidences and, you know, our acronym is evidences. Um, what these stands for, I think we'll slowly go over each one. And maybe if, if you're cool with it, um, maybe even we open the word of God together. You know, you can read some portion and we could talk about it too. Um, but I'm just going to give the acronyms first of how it helps us. If we're very conscious that the Old Testament is our philosophy of evidence, that we're looking at the New Testament, what Jesus done with New Testament, with Old Testament eyes. Um, these are the different part where it helps us see Jesus even more powerfully as a Messiah. So evidences, E-V-I-D-E-N-C-E-S, the acronym is, I would see that the Old Testament helps us see Christ is the, Jesus is the Messiah of Christ in these various ways. Number one, E is for evidences. Um, number two is V for verses the New Testament uses. Okay, that is, um, what, if you know more of the Old Testament, you appreciate the verses the New Testament site is intentionally and authorial intent even, I would argue, um, is what is intended to be that Jesus is Messiah. Um, individuals, um, individuals for I, Again, EVI is the first three we would look at evidence versus New Testament uses and I for individuals. By the way, I'm going to go through these and we'll explain each one later, right? Um, D is for date, even um, environment. That is, even where Jesus Christ is at, the geography um, is even intentional. Sometimes we can miss the incredible proof that Jesus is the Messiah. When we, if we don't have the Old Testament as background, we can miss where he's doing certain places that attest that he's Messiah. So environment, that is geography. Even his names, that is the titles Jesus used. Um, if you don't know the Old Testament as your philosophy of evidence, then you can miss. And you could even think, oh, Jesus Christ, why is he the Messiah? Um, um, unless we see the um, intentional use of Jesus using names and titles that goes back to the Old Testament that shows he's Messiah. Um, so that's N. And then we go to C for con conversation. There's conversation Jesus have that we can miss how powerful um, Jesus is the Messiah if we don't know the Old Testament as our philosophy of evidence. And then also even the exclusion of Jesus, E for exclusion of Jesus, um, shows when Jesus is rejected, that doesn't mean, therefore, oh, wow, Jesus is not the Messiah. How could the people, the Jews, uh, the national ethnic Israel, physical Israel, why would they reject Jesus? Is that this proof Jesus Christ is Messiah? No, if you know the Old Testament, even his exclusion is strong proof that he's Messiah. And then the last part is S in the evidences that signs, that the signs Jesus did is never done in the vacuum. And it was done that must be, and Jesus himself says, interpret these things in light of Old Testament um, truths also as well. Let me uh, state all these phrases. Again, we're going to look at these examples. Number one, so evidences, the acronym is the Old Testament. When we look at the New Testament, we see these things shows Jesus the Messiah. Number one is events, um, E for events, B for verses New Testament uses, I for individuals, 
D for date, E for environment, that is referring to geography, names, or N for names, C for conversation, E for exclusion of Jesus, S for science. And I think we'll begin first with E for event. Um, I'm going to just pick one event that could seem so mundane. Um, this, if you're cool with this, let's open up to Mark 6. Um, Mark 6. Um, I'm going to summarize the context because it, it is a show. We have a limited amount of time. Um, but Mark 6 is, you could look at Mark 6 and think, okay, this is just one of many Jesus' miracle. But if we don't actually know the Old Testament, we could kind of miss the intentional thing. I think the author leaves this... Um, I don't know if you like imagining, Nate, you, you probably like movies and I like movies too. I actually feel like the more I love the Bible, the more I appreciate movies. Um, what mm -hmm. they call something called Easter eggs, right? You ever hear that where so you watch certain movies, there's certain things that they put in there that if you know more background, you're like, wow, that's so amazing um, mm -hmm. that, that it's there. I actually think if you look at Mark 6, there's a big Easter egg that you would never appreciate if you don't think consciously, uh, deliberately and consciously to say, where is there anything here in the Old Testament that makes us appreciate Jesus Christ as Messiah? Um, if we're in Mark 6, um, I actually think if you know Psalm 23, I, um, I think a lot of believers love Psalm 23. This is the one where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you know that passage, when you look at Mark 6, you see the new lens that appreciate even this event is pointing towards Jesus Christ as Messiah. Um, brother, would you be able to read, for, oh, by the way, what? Uh, Bible, do you usually use ESV or NASB? Uh, the message. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, ESV. <laughs> ESV, okay. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, if you, would you be able to read Mark 6? So I, I'm more of an NASB guy. Maybe this is my influence of. Oh, I have NAS, NASB. I can grab it. Yeah, it's okay. You know, we can use ESV. That, that you might sure? Be in, in okay. Yeah. We could have the one and the many, the one word of God and many yeah. translations. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Uh, Mark 6, uh, starting where until oh, what? Verse 34. We'll just look at verse okay. 34. All right, so Mark 6, 34 says, uh, this is God's word. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Yeah, I love this, because the author, he writing this, the human author, and of course, God's the ultimate author behind it. That it was very important that when Jesus was on a boat, he's going to the other side, and there's all these people, people wanting to see the signs, wonders, and miracle. And right away, the narrator tells us, Jesus, looking at the crowd, he saw these people are like sheep without a shepherd. And of course, we know um, Jesus is the, called in the New Testament, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, and all of that. And this here, he's looking at the crowd, and this is his sheep. And I think when you see this, if you know Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Of course, there's going to be things that they're going to need pretty soon, right? They're going to be hungry uh, later on. But I think this is an intentional thing. When you read Psalm 23, you might say, okay, wow, this imagery should trigger us to think of antecedent theology of even what God's word has to say about sheep. The most famous, of course, is Psalm 23. But I want to point out there's certain things that Mark is doing is trying to say, paying attention to say, give details that would never make sense. That we would never appreciate unless you know the Old Testament. Let's look uh, in verses 39. Would you be able to read again verse 39, brother? Yeah, still Mark 6? Yes, correct. Okay, uh, Mark 6, 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Yeah, and, and I love how he calls the attention to saying 
something so like we could say mundane is why would a narrator, um, the author, write about green grass? I mean, um, if you know, like I think we most know, most of us know, right? Of the four gospel, Mark is the shortest. They often say in terms of guys that do need to have some introduction, it's probably written for a Roman soldier light enough to carry a summarized form, if you will, of Jesus' life. And back then, paper was very scarce, right? So whatever words you're writing, you need to use an economy of words um, because paper was expensive. Um, even back then, not every New Testament believer in the first century had a pocket New Testament because of the size of paper. Sometimes it was um, uh, a group thing, a, a community thing with God's word. And of course, people memorize it uh, individually, right? To know, store in their heart, meditate upon it. But I want to call attention, why would it be deliberate to say green grass? And I actually think if you should trigger us to the fact of Psalm 23, okay, I'm going to now read Psalm 23, verse 2. Um, of course, the Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. That's verse 1. And Psalm 23, verse 2 says, he lets me lie down in green pasture. He leads me besides quiet waters. And you know what blows my mind away is I actually think Mark is intentionally trying to say, look at this event. Look at this event in light of Old Testament. That the green grass in Psalm 23, verse 2, the Hebrew word is actually saying there's more than one word for green, more than one word for grass. That's like, I think uh, our analogy is, um, I know like for us, we English, we might have only one word for snow. But if you're living in Alaska, the natives there have many words. I don't know how many, there's like over a dozen words because that's their environment. Just like the same thing in English, we might say the word rice. There's one word. But if you go to like Asia, there's more than one word for rice because they're a culture that's based upon rice. So in the same thing in that agricultural uh, society, there's more than word word for green and one word for grass. And this is actually referring to spring grass. So when you see here that fresh grass is imagery is invoking us to say Psalm 23. This is a picture that we're in the grass. They're now looking at a crowd without a shepherd. You should think about Jesus Christ as what? The shepherd, the great shepherd. Let's go on even a little bit further here with this event that it, it, New Testament eyes makes us appreciate Jesus is the shepherd. Let's look now at uh, Mark 6, verse 51. Would you be able to read this? This is a few hours later after the event Jesus fed the 5,000, which shows, of course, he's feeding them. They would not have any want. The Messiah is able to fulfill the want, and he's therefore the Messiah, the shepherd. Um, Mark 6, 51, a few hours later at night. Would you be able to read that? Yeah. Mark 6, 51 says, and he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Yeah, and this is an amazing miracle. If you remember, um, after this whole thing, Jesus told his disciples, get on a boat to go. And he walked on water, and there's a big storm, and Jesus calms the storm. And if you, when you read these events, if you notice, after a while, you might say, okay, maybe, Jimmy, it might be just coincidence, the green grass. It might be just coincidence, the narrator says, shepherd, which to me, then the next event is there's a big storm. And Jesus calms a big storm, a water, okay? And of course, we see, if you remember Psalm 23, verse 2, I'm just going to read this again. The last part, last line in verse 2 says, he leads me besides quiet water. And I think now with a third instance, Jesus is in this water. You might say, okay, there's just calm water. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But to be in the middle of a storm and for Jesus to calm down the water shows that he has the power and the prerogative of God. In other words, he is Yahweh, the great shepherd of Psalm 23. And we can look at these events and miss it, all the details, unless we are conscious to say, let us have our biblical theology be even our philosophy of evidence to say, when you look at this, you're like, wow, 
Jesus is this great Messiah. He literally calmed a storm, the water himself. And Psalm 23 helps us as philosophy of evidence to interpret this event to say Jesus must be the shepherd. Any thoughts uh, to add or anything else to add, Nathan? I didn't know this one and I love it. It's very incredible because I was actually thinking before you mentioned the the storm and the calming of the waters, I was like, ah, because I knew in Psalms 23, it talks about mm-hmm. leading behind the, the still waters. Um, and and um, yeah, that's incredible. I, I really like that, Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And you're right. I mean, these are things, guys, listeners, uh, men, women, children, whatever, um, listening that this is what, this is, uh, you know, what we're doing right now is a, a exciting uh, kind of promotion for you guys to read your Old Testament and and see these connections for yourself as well, as you're doing with us, obviously, but um, there's way, way more, <laughs> uh, yeah. way more stuff like this, and it's beautiful, but go ahead and continue on, Jimmy. Yeah, for the sake of time, man, I know we have a short on time, uh, so that's the event. Uh, I mean, Psalm 23, I think you could even look at it, that Jesus is not just only the shepherd, um, but he was also the Lamb of God himself, that Yahweh was also, God the Father was his Lamb. Because if you remember, he prepared a table before me, Psalm 23, even the presence of my uh, enemy. I think of Judas, the night before he's going to die, right? That he is having his, in the presence of his enemy, God has provided. If you remember, he had to send his disciples. Um, during the Passover, everyone, uh, most of the rooms are vacant. Um, Josephus said there's even about 2 million people pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And to have a room, remember the upper room? Mm-hmm. To, to have a guy randomly go out there and say, hey, you, did you prepare? It's almost almost unheard of that someone would not rent out a big hall space for the disciples. So God has prepared even a table, even the presence of his enemy of Judas. And of course, even the shadow of death, Jesus went. So I think this is beautiful that the Messiah is both shepherd and also the sheep, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm-hmm. But for the sake of time, I'm just summarizing that one. We didn't look at any verses. You guys can look that up later. Let's go on to verses. Um, so E is event. B is verses. I think when you look at Jesus would quote verses in the Old Testament, which we would never appreciate unless you understand the Old Testament in its historical grammatical context. Um, I'm just going to look real quick. Um, if you could turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 20. Um, to Luke chapter 20, verse 42. Uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 42. Um, uh, brother, would you be able to read that so I could catch my breath? Yes. Uh, okay, Luke 20, 42, correct? Yes. Okay. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Amen. And um, I know you love biblical theology too. You know what verses he's quoting from? Uh, well, I know that's in Hebrews as well. And I think that is also in Psalms 20, 110. That's good. 110, okay. You got it. Yeah, close enough, right? Yeah, I mentioned this because, man, Luke 20 is so rich. And maybe we could have a future show. Maybe I'm promoting myself too much. We could do a show where, you know, WWJD apologetics. Like, this was actually the source of my thesis for my THM where I argue that Jesus, originally I titled Jesus, Jesus of Antillian Presuppositionals. The school kind of felt it might be a little too sacrilegious, so they just said Jesus the Presuppositionals. Um, but Jesus is actually engaging in debate here, um, and he's citing Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted um, Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament. You mentioned Hebrews. I mean, Jesus quotes it here, and he's uh, applying this in a polemical 
um, argumentative context where people, there's religious enemies, they want to stump him. This is a few days he's about to die. And Jesus is a gay. This to me, Luke 20 is like the Bonsenstein debate times 10, because this is Jesus, our Lord, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's using this verse to argue with him, saying, hey, how could this person, he's asking them in verse 42, he cite this and say, hey, how's the Christ is David's son? Because the Christ is born from David, but then you see here, David is speaking as he says, verse 44, how did David call him Lord and say it's his son? So notice Jesus uses this verse, and I think this is to show that when you know more of Psalm 110 in its context, I actually think that Psalm 110 cannot be a human being because David gives more. And this is a patriarchal society. Um, maybe in our West today, we don't appreciate that much. I, I know in the Asian context that I'm in, you know, we, we show respect for our elders. And in the Christian context, we do too, obviously, right? It's a secular West, maybe not as much, right? We see movies, cartoon, making fun of older people. If they don't know anything, our parents don't know, right? But we see here that Jesus is arguing this is a king and is also in the context also a priest. You don't see king and priest come together in the Old Testament. There's a separation of roles, which argues that he's someone greater and more mightier and more powerful. This is not an ordinary human being that's going to rule forever. So I think when you see verses that use, when you know more of the Old Testament, his background and philosophy of it, it becomes even more robust. What we only see in summary form as recorded by Luke we see even more robust of an apologetics as our philosophy evidence that Jesus is a Messiah. Mm. Yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. For the sake of time, you're okay. We go on to the next part. We'll oh, oh, we're, we got an hour and 20 minutes, brother. So wow. you're good to go. As long as you're, you can keep going, you know, yeah. you got an hour 20. If you could, you, you could take up that whole slide. I don't mind. Yeah. Hopefully uh, we'll go, and if it's too long, you might have to chop it off to be you know, <laughs> new episodes. Yeah, I used to uh, think about doing that, but I, I, you know, just having so many guests, I got to get them out yeah. there, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. That's great. Praise God. Yeah. Let's go on to the next one uh, is individuals. And what I mean by individuals is um, I'm going to be referring now. So E is for event. V mm-hmm. is for versus. Now we're at the point of evidences, our academic work. It's I for individuals. I think for this one, um, I'm not going to look at this right away, but I'm just going to summarize. Um, in Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophecy that says that one day there'll be a prophet, singular. Uh, I know there's guys said many prophets, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, but in Deuteronomy 18, he uses the word, uh, Moses used the word singular, a uh, prophet that's going to be one day like Moses himself, that's going to come, and we should definitely listen to him. Now, I think when we look at this, this is where Old Testament typology, I think, is um, should be part of our apologetics, is a validation that Jesus is the Messiah. I know in looking at the literature, sometimes you see a lot of um, apologists, they don't really like typology. They like the more direct prophecy. But actually, this is where, for me, as a presuppositionist, if we say the biblical theology is even our apologetics, that means it's not less evidence, but ironically, even though we they charge presuppositionists as don't believe in evidence, don't cite any evidence, or even no evidence. Ironically, I think as a presuppositionist, we believe even using more evidence than the typical standard evidential because typology is evidence itself. That is, individuals and institution is actually pointing us towards Christ. Mm-hmm. When I think of Moses, and, and it says here that Jesus, it's actually Deuteronomy 18 is making it deliberate to say the Messiah must be like Moses. 
Then I asked the question, did Jesus, is he like Moses in what ways? So I'm going to just summarize. There's a lot of verses. Uh, I think maybe the document later on, I could have you, you know, upload it for readers. Mm. Um, but for the sake of time, I think there, Jesus was like Moses in various ways. Um, both was born under oppressive king. Uh, Moses was with Pharaoh. If you remember, he wants to kill um, these oppressive un, um, Hebrew child. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was born under a client king named King Herod. Again, it was under Roman Empire, but there's certain areas where there's under lesser king, maybe with a small case, so to speak. So the same way, um, both also, when they were born, Jesus was like Moses in that both of them was born in a time when there were kings that wanted to kill children. Um, Harold wanted to drown them in the river. You know, if you remember um, the wise men went to King Harold, uh, correction, Pharaoh wanted to kill all the, uh, the males uh, mm -hmm. of the Hebrews because there's so many of them as slaves. And Jesus, of course, was when the wise men came to Harold, say, hey, where is the Messiah? He, of course, was jealous, didn't want to kill every two-year-old. Um, I take it the two-year-olds, he wanted to be safe to yeah. kill everyone. Which I actually think sometimes we miss the Christmas story is a horrific story that one of the reasons why we know Jesus is the Messiah is I actually think when they went to the hometown of Bethlehem, remember how they did a genealogical order? There would not have been anyone. If you imagine if Jesus was to be with all his cousins around two years age and older, uh, you know, two year range, I actually think there was no, they were all killed except for him. The only candidate for the Messiah is Jesus Christ because in this parallels, even with Moses, right? That there was a king that was uh, killing firstborn. Another thing is also after birth, both was placed in a box. I, I know there's dispute of that today. Some people say, you know, he was not in the manger. I still take the historical interpretation that he was in the manger, you know, that he was in a box. And of course, um, Moses was also put in an ark. I actually think there's a biblical theology there too. Mm -hmm. um, the Hebrew word for box is ark. That kind of reminds us of Noah. So he was placed in an ark also as well in a box after he was born. Um, so that's a, a parallel. Both is also protect, God protects the witnesses. If you remember to the birth, um, with that God uh, protected even the family from not uh, Moses from being killed for breaking Moses's law. And of course, God protect Joseph and Mary. Uh, I mean, that's even just a birth parallel, right? You know, both also went into hiding in Egypt also as well. Right. Both were also they left Egypt, symbolize a new era is going to dawn and both entered the wilderness. Right. Um, both also expound on God's law, where Matthew five to seven is Jesus is giving, explaining all these law. The Sermon on the Mount is is giving a new kingdom law. Right. And then all, there's also ways Jesus was like Moses, other things. Right. There's miracles being performed. Um, both had to deal with kings of hardened hearts. Right. Whether with Pharaoh or whether with um Moses, the parallel, I mean, there's so many, I, I, I've listed in my outline um, dozens, right? Um, both had to deal with groups of 12, uh, Moses with the 12 tribes, Jesus with what, the 12 disciples, right? Um, both spent 40 days, 40 nights up in the mountain um, with God, uh, literally 40 days and 40 nights. Um, Moses, in the case in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 9, 11, before the giving of the law, and Jesus, of course, um, went through the temptation 40 days and 40 nights in the gospels before he goes and give the sermon on the mount so there's all these literal parallels right um, moses healed a leper jesus healed a leper also as well um but jesus in all these even showed he's greater when he healed the leper um jesus healed by just what touching where moses didn't even touch right 
Um, I mean, there's all these interesting parallels um, that it has. Um, let me stop at this point. Could you think of any more or other? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, well, um, yes. Hang on. I had it. Okay. It was, um, oh, uh, Exodus 32, I believe, when uh, uh, Moses comes down from the mountain, they're worshiping the mm. golden calf. And what's Moses do? Intercedes for the mm. people yes. that God would not, you know, judge them and pour out his wrath. Right. Yeah. Uh, I know open theists love that one, but we're not giving it to him. But for us, it's a, a typology of intercession. Uh, Christ is our intercessory uh, man. All right. He's our priest and king and prophet. Right. So yeah. that's that's one that came to mind. Um, and uh, also, you know, I've been reading uh, I have G.K. Beals and uh, Benjamin mm-hmm. Glad. I think it's called the, the wherever it is. Oh, the story retold. It's mm-hmm. a biblical theological introduction to the New Testament. Yeah. And I, I use it as with my Bible reading as kind of a devotional content as I go through um, my Bible reading. I'll read the sections on what they have to say. Uh, um, one of the biblical theology things talked about the mountain. Uh, uh, Eden was on a, a high yes. mountain, uh, the giving of the law, Mount Sinai. Uh, Christ commissioning the 12 or I'm sorry, the 11 disciples uh, to go out. Um, uh, so yeah, Jesus gives that on a mountain. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> even, yeah. even mountains have something important to tell us. Um, yeah. Amen. Uh, I love GK Bio, what he has to point out with mountains. Um, yeah. There's a whole, I think you could, we could even argue. Um, I don't have the book with me right now. I forgot which one of his book. He argued that even Sinai, or correction, the um, the temple uh, mm-hmm. or the tabernacle with all the carving, there is almost like a portable um, mountain. Mount Sinai also is where you take with them. Yeah, so there is a biblical theology of that. Of course, Jesus Christ dying on the hills of Calvary, and what a beautiful picture. And Mount Moriah, with Genesis twenty-two, like it is. I mean, this is falling under the environment part. I know we are just uh, looking at individual, but when we look at mm-hmm. environment, the geography matters um and it's just so enriching to show us the that jesus is inside amen amen yeah. yeah sorry i skipped a little ahead there that's good yeah <laughs> that's good yeah that's good to steal the bend there. there's so i mean there's so many literally we're trying to give a um wikipedia opening paragraph summary version of that right yeah yeah so um is it okay to go to the next one um, yeah yeah let's hop on it so if that's individual the next one is date um, I don't have time to look in, and this is one I'm studying myself literally for my devotional right now. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 to 27, um, again, this is going to be more, encourage the readers to go look it up and study more on this. Um, it actually, I think, predicts even the 70 weeks of Daniel, um, predicts even to the point of when the Messiah would even die also as well. Um, with that, I know um, this is where, you know, I, I know we talk about there's different brothers with different views. Um, there's dispensational and um, covenantal and stuff like that. I think this is where all I, I know there's this debate about end times, about the last week and stuff like that. But I think every one of us agree that, man, it predicted even to the point of when Christ would die. Um, I'm going to give that for people to say to look it up themselves with the word D for date, because I think this is one of the most amazing wonder. If you want Further resources, one of the things I'm reading right now is there's a free booklet that is available from Chapel Library. I think it's called The Greatest Proof or something like that. Um, just If you just type in Daniel 9 in Chapel Library, 
www.ebook.org. Type it up. It's a free book. We could read on electronically PDF, or if you ask for it, they can send it to you for free too. But that's an incredible thing. There's so many guys that have written all these guys. I've actually, this is a part where I do appreciate even some of the dispensational guys. I think um, their love for Old Testament, they've done a good job um, to, to look at some of the richness. Again, I'm not saying subscribe to certain eschatology, but this is where we appreciate the community of scholars that God has given Amen. us with that. With that. Yeah, so that's date. So EVID, so event um, versus New Testament use, individuals, date. Now the next one is environment. And you've alluded to this earlier, even the, the mountains matters. Um, God's word makes it very clear of even Messianic prophecy. For Christmas, we know Micah 5, 2, right? Mm-hmm. About Bethlehem, he was born. But I want to look at one that might not be as obvious. Let's turn to Isaiah 9, verses 1. Brother, would you be able to read Isaiah 9, 1 for me? Yeah. Again, Isaiah 9-1. All right, 9-1. Okay, you ready? Yes. Okay. Uh, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. Uh, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the jordan galilee of the nations yeah amen uh i love this passage because uh i think isaiah 9 one of the most famous verse most believers know is isaiah 9 6 the christmas verse right mm-hmm. where god uh, there will be um for a child will be given to us a son will be given to us and the government rests on his shoulder i like the word singular government right will rest on his shoulders we call all these titles including divine titles of eternal father, prince of peace, and mighty God. So we know this is messianic, but in Isaiah 9-1, what you have just read, brother, Mm -hmm. uh, Nate, is you identified the geographical location of where the Messiah would do his ministry. Specifically, it says, well, Galilee. And it also locates the timing of the geography. This will be a time where there'll be even Gentiles. Now, Galilee, I think the best way to think of it in terms of Israel at the time is kind of like the backwater, it's like the farming area. Um, if you want to be a religious leader, you might not go there. It's almost like um, with all respect. Maybe an example, if someone wants to be a movie star and then they decide to go to Iowa, that's probably not the place to be the happening. Or if you want to be a country music star, you probably won't be going to just um, Wyoming. You'll be going to Nashville or movie star, you'll go to LA. But yet here it says the Messiah is going to be operating in Galilee, the Iowa of Israel, so to speak, at that time to say he's doing ministry in a time where there will be even Gentiles are taking over. And the son that will be given to us, that the government rests on his shoulders, the messianic son is identified with that. So when you read the New Testament, all these parts, when it says he's in Galilee, he's doing all these miracles, what's the significance of that? We miss that. We might just say, like, oh, Bethsaida, okay, I fall asleep, see of Galilee. We, we miss that. Unless you have New Testament eyes, then you see like, whoa, your eyes get big, that this must be the Messiah. Because it fulfilled Isaiah chapter 9. So you see, even in light of the Old Testament philosophy of evidence, geography and environment matters. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's then, a great one. Yeah. <laughs> as it's so beautiful. Let's, if we could just move on. I know I'm like trucking along. Um, because oh, no, you're good, brother. Yeah, so that's environment, um, E for environment. The next part of our acronym for evidence is names. Um, I'm just going to look real quick with name and example. Uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 5, verse 24. Luke chapter 5, verse 24. 
if you could, when you get there, um, read that. Luke 4. Uh, Luke you chapter said? 5. Oh, sorry, 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 24. 24, okay. All right. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Yeah, amen. In the context, Jesus has just healed a paralytic man. Before he healed him, he said like, hey, your sins are forgiven, which made the religious leader really mad because they're thinking no one can forgive sins except for God alone. And then Jesus asking them this question. And I like even the way he gives evidence. He is, he's presuppositional. He's not just saying, hey, evidence on neutral ground. He even asks a counter question, which shows he's trying to press them to think about the philosophy of evidence. Because when he talks to them, he says, which one's easier, to forgive sin or to say to a paralytic man to rise? And the right answer is both are hard. Uh, it is hard if you are, if Jesus Christ was not God and it was a man, it is impossible for any man to ever forgive. So it's hard theologically. But it was also hard in the sense of a sense of actual miracle regularity. No one can every day just say, hey, walk up. So then Jesus brings these two together with this, making them think both are difficult but then if jesus raised this man up what does that mean it shows that he must have the authority to forgive and even in this notice jesus says this title right what he calls himself he calls himself in the third person the son of man now i think of most of us perhaps have met people that maybe jehovah witnesses to say things like son of man shows jesus christ is not god because he's the son of man but actually the opposite is true if you don't read it in terms of neutral ground or autonomous ground, if you interpret that title in terms of Old Testament philosophy of evidence, Daniel chapter 7 uses the title Son of Man and actually indicates this title Son of Man must be God. So Jesus is giving a double proof that he's God, not only with a miracle, not only with he's saying forgiving sin, but the other thing is he gives that title, the name for himself, Son of Man. If you turn real quick with me to um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I'll just read this, 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14 says this, I keep looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up the ancient of days and was presented before him. Verse 14, and he and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and men of every language might serve him. I actually think this indicates he's God, that all people would serve him, that people would approach him that he will be even in heaven. And according to verse 14, he will rule forever. So rather than this title, Son of Man showing Jesus Christ is not God, it actually has the opposite if our Old Testament um, is our philosophy of evidence because Daniel 7, 13 and 14 shows he is divine. He rules forever. So again, using these titles, we would never appreciate this unless you see the philosophy of evidence, including the philosophy of evidence, includes the Old Testament mm. when it comes to even names Jesus use. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's great, Jimmy. And I was, I was just thinking about how um, the Pharisees in a sense had a religious understanding of the scriptures very much. So more so than anyone in the West would ever have um, a culture where they'd memorize. I think it was the first couple of books of the Bible word for word verbatim. Um, they'd have to orally, you know, proclaim and be able to say the entire book of, the law <laughs> incredible stuff it, it seems insane but that's what they did um but it shows you no matter how intellectual that you can be and that you are 
doesn't necessarily mean you're right. Because, I mean, look at, because of the lens by which they viewed what the Messiah was going to be, and he wasn't what they thought he was going to be as a, you know, kind of a, a new David coming in and wiping out the Romans and, and bringing forth the kingdom and establishing them as the best people and everyone else serves them. And, you know, they had a completely misunderstanding worldview uh, a lens, a wrong presupposition, a wrong starting point by which they're blind to the actual truth of the reality of what was going on. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. That's so true. Um, so for, yeah, that man, scripture is so rich and I like what you said. It's not just our intellect. This is where I think it's so important when we teach apologetics, we shouldn't just only teach guys to be sharp with logic. We actually need to go over the way you interpret these evidence um, is the old, reading the Old Testament to realize the fear of the Lord is the source of wisdom. And if that's true, practically, it should be that we as presuppositions, and this is a loving you know, rebuke and encouragement, we should really ground ourselves in biblical theology um, and then to see that. And I think even it's not just adopting the Old Testament and therefore is our apologetics. I think it's there is an evidential um, value even that because the Old Testament you fit together like a glove in a hand that you look at it it's just it can't be, I'm not using this I, I know it's almost a tongue-in-cheek it's almost it's so fit so perfectly this is more fit more perfectly than even any intelligent design argument because when you see it comes together it meshes together like man what a beauty that it shows us that Jesus Christ must be um, and I would actually be honest with you, brother, my number one proof, if I were to number, what is the number one reason why I believe Jesus Christ and Messiah? It is the Old and New Testament prophecy. Um, mm. This, to me, is is more than, there is a place for transcendental argumentation. Because when people come over and say, hey, world-driven chance, refute my, uh, based upon that, to refute all these evidence, I'll keep on showing them, reduce it to absurdity and possibly the contrary. But let us even go more, be, be more robust in our precept by even saying this in the end, it's a self-evidential, um, self-attesting word of God. And it's not a simple thing of just, okay, it says it's true, which is true, but it's even more multidimensional, multifaceted of even messianic prophecies in its own, um, what it says itself. It fits mm. so beautifully with that. Yeah, that's so incredible, Jimmy. And, and I was just thinking of uh, the Westminster Confession. It, it talks about the beauty and majesty of, of Holy mm. Scripture and it's and, and, you know, I used to read that and be like, well, that's okay. That's kind of weird. I don't really get it. But then when, you know, I got into, you know, these kind of conversations we're having right now, I realized, ah, it's the continuity. It's the beauty of how yeah. Christ, I mean, it, 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 and it, you're right. It, it, uh, it's such a strong argument to be made of just the perfect harmony, the absolute yeah. God's perfect harmony all throughout the old to the new as one grand redemptive narrative of God's salvation for his people as the second Adam, the, the one that fulfills all that, that Adam failed to do. And, and even more so it's God himself is incarnated as the son of God. And it's incredible. Uh, the yeah. Trinitarian nature of our God and, and, uh, his, the father, uh, sending yeah. the sun accomplishing and the spirit applying it uh, and, uh, and giving us the preservation and sign and seal that will continue on till we're with him in a new consummation and we're caught up in with him it's beautiful yeah. uh yeah you know people say well, I, you know this is kind of like a random thing to say after that but i mean people are like well, how, how do you you know how do i grow in holiness how do i how do i grow in my love for god 
get um, utterly persuaded of the beauty and majesty of your savior. And it'll be the most natural thing. Your obedience will become the natural response um, where you want to honor him. You want to serve him. You're going to, you're going to want to love him. You're going to want to be holy, even though it's kind of cringy to, to the world. And you're going to want to be a pilgrim. Uh, All those things will come as you see the great redemptive plan of God for your salvation and your response of utter gratefulness and thankfulness of the heart, the circumcision of the heart that brings you out to, to love God and, and fullness and joy. Amen. Amen. Amen to that. Brother. Yeah. So picking this up, um, the next part I have in the acronym evidence, we just looked at names and we just had a worship feast just right now. Well, the two of us, hopefully those listening online too. Um, the next part is conversation. I'm not going to mention any, but we've already seen an example of conversations Jesus had where we don't appreciate it. And by the way, there is a lot of conversation and even Jesus' speech that's recorded. Um, the longest one, the book that probably has Jesus' longest speeches is probably the Gospel of John. And there's a sense where John, Gospel of John, was a Johnny come lately. There's three other gospel came first, which shows his word is so important. And of course, now people recognize, scholars recognize just how rich the book of John is in Old Testament motif, theme and imagery and biblical theology. So I think uh, we further appreciate that in the conversation. So um, that's going to be pretty short because we've seen many examples already where Jesus is even engaged in polemical discussion, apologetics type of uh, debates, and yet he draws in um, scripture, Old Testament references to even refute and even to stop and even to challenge people with that, okay? So that's conversation. Let's go on to the next part, um, exclusion of Jesus. Um, I actually think the exclusion of Jesus is actually, ironically, this is almost like an impossibility of contrary, almost like if the Jews accept it, then wow, that's amazing to see this proof, but also even the rejection still shows Jesus Christ is what is Messiah. Mm. So it's almost like a biblical theology kind of um, impossibility to contrary. And yeah. For this, yeah, I, he, this is so rich. I, I love this, how everything ties together, right? Like all these theme in various multifaceted way, um, which which is like very John Framian in, in the sense of perspectivalism. <laughs> everything fits together so beautifully um, mm. in, in various ways um, that we look at this. Um, for this part of just looking at this part of... Um, Exclusion of Jesus. Let's actually look up, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Um, Luke chapter 20. And I really like um, looking at Luke 20. You see there's a back and forth debate um, Jesus had. Again, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's arguing with the religious leaders. The first one that started uh, started this debate, um, if this was to be a a debate, you could see uh, verses 1 to 8 is the first, the attack. The, Pharisee, the religious leaders goes on the offense. Then if you look in Luke chapter 20, um, verses 9, Jesus then goes on the offense, where he then tells them the story, which I actually think he's doing a presuppositional argument, kind of like inviting them to say, hey, step into my worldview. But how do you practically and tactically do that? Is you tell parables. It's very hard when people listen to parables, they kind of draw in. It's not like people read a book and we tell them, so you erase. No, no, I reject so he's inv- practically, tactically inviting them to say, step into my worldview to explain what's going on. If you look at verses 9 to 18, he gives a parable about how there's these guys that rent from a landlord. And they're going to be beating up all these uh, messengers that say, hey, it's time to pay rent. And of course, the analogy is he's trying to draw with them is to say, hey, you guys, religious leaders, are like the people that are working on this vineyard. And the owner is like God saying, hey, could you pay the rent that is due? You should owe honor to God. 
you should all honor and, and everything. And of course, they're beating up the, the messengers. Eventually, then notice he goes on and says, verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son and they will respect him because they give lip service. Just like the religious leaders, they say, oh, we love God's son. But then now he comes and notice what he says. They're going to say, hey, we're going to kill him. And they throw him. And then the religious leader says in verse 16, a very strong form in the Greek, where it says, may never be there. Say, impossible. You're saying we're going to kill the Messiah? And then Jesus tells them, you will kill me. And that's one of the proof that I am the Messiah, because he says, well, so it's almost like the meaning and possibility of the contrary. If you accept, of course, there's verses that says he will be accepted. But also says, even rejecting me, this proves that I am the Messiah, because he says, what is this that is written? The stone, verse 17, which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. He's citing the Psalms 118. And Psalms 118, I would recommend. Um, this is I'm going to be selfish plug a little bit. Like for free though. If you go to Sermon Audio, type Psalm 118, uh, Jimmy Lee. Uh, you could find my sermon going over Psalm 118. It's so rich of a messianic prophecy. The word for stone there in the Hebrew is eben where you today you hear people called Eben, which means precious stone. I actually think that's one of the titles of the Messiah. Going back to Genesis 49 in our biblical theology, antecedent theology, that said the Messiah will come from the line of Judah. And of course, that's fulfilled um, in Psalm uh, here saying that the stone himself, the Messiah, will be rejected. So even the fact that the Messiah will be rejected was predicted in Psalm 118 that the stone will be rejected by the builder. No, you're fine, brother. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this is the beauty of even prediction, the exclusion of Jesus, the rejection on the cross is proof also as well that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm. But anything else we can add? Brother? Oh, no, that's, uh, it's wonderful. It, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing because, yeah, like your summary of it too, it, and it's almost, uh, I think he uh, also mentions in, in this uh, parable, um, you know, let me see if i'm thinking um was it uh maybe i'm just wrong i i think there's something maybe it's not in this one but uh talks about how they kind of killed all the other uh messengers like you know the all the other old testament prophets and yet they still even reject the messiah Uh, i don't think that's in listen just not reading close enough but yeah i think you are yeah it says that he sends one in verses 11 they beat you know they treat him shamefully empty-handed then the third one they wounded right so okay these, okay yeah. yeah i am right okay <laughs> yeah, you're right. yeah, yeah and that's uh amazing too talking about the old yeah. testament prophets and and how christ yeah. is uh, even the chief cornerstone that is rejected uh yeah so i, yeah. I think this example in verses 9 to 14 shows that what i'm trying to do biblical theology as a philosophy of evidence this is not me making this up this is not even just van till this is this is og apologetics as you can get this is Jesus Christ applying a biblical theology to explain redemptive history to the climactic crescendo of Christ being rejected. And of course, we know from elsewhere to even die for our sin. Mm. So to me, this is Christ-centered. This is doxological apologetics. This is like, man, this is 16 ounces of the pound presuppositional apologetics with the word of God, with the rich manifold of not just systematic theology, a biblical theology. And to see Jesus Christ does as himself were real life opponents. To me, this is validation that our apologetics were doing this. This is, this is not just an invention of, of, of a wise man named Van Til who applied Voss to apologetics. This is 
this is not just Westminster. This is Jesus Christ himself, the beautiful manifold that he's given us this method. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, often we all talk about our favorite uh, scholars and theologians and philosophers. And and really, it's just a subway of saying we love what they found in the word. Uh, it's not us being like, oh, we follow. It's, it's kind of like, uh, uh, was it First Corinthians? Just like, I follow Paulus. I follow yeah. Paul. He's like, stop it. That's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's like, it's the Lord. It's we follow Christ and him crucified. And and I think that's always important for our listeners to know, too. You know, we can love uh, the, the church and the teachers and the preachers that the Lord has brought into the church. And we should take and drink, drink deeply from from what they've the treasure mines of which they brought out from the word of God. You know, in Proverbs, it talks about how we, you know, it, it's digging for precious uh, jewels and, and gold. It's like you're, you're mining over the scriptures to to see the richness and, and beauty of it. And, and that's all these men have done for us is, is provide for us the ability to see richly what was there the whole time. Um, not that it's something new, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, th- I just think that's incredible too. And, and just thinking of how, uh, who, who's the, you know, I, I think of a hermeneutical question um, and people say, you know, you just, you can't know which interpretation's right. And, you know, your postmodern philosophy kind of thing. And, and, and just hearing us talk as something that popped into my head was just the ideas. Well, who's the best uh, possible interpreter? Well, I'm pretty sure God himself would be the best interpreter of his world and of his plan. And that's exactly what you get with Jesus. He's telling you everything you need to know. And he's the infallible interpreter, the ultimate presupper, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it's incredible. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So let's, uh, so when we look at exclusion of Jesus, the Old Testament enriches us to see even that's in evidence. And also the last one is science. This is probably the most obvious that all the miracles, we must look at this, all the things he's done, miraculous work and stuff is really show that he's Messiah. I think uh, in looking at this last one, we'll, let's open up to Luke uh, 7, verse, um, verses 18 to 23. Um, is that okay? You, I know that's a long section. Um, would you be able to read verses 18 to 23? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I'm uh, sorry. What was it? Luke, t- Luke uh, 7, 7 verses 18 to 23. Luke 7 verse 18 to 23. Okay. Luke 7, 18 through 23, correct? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Uh, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Amen. Amen. Yeah, what a beauty here. I think uh, what's going on here is... You know, Jesus, John the Baptist wasn't sure if, you know, in the moment of doubt in prison, is Jesus the Messiah? He asked his disciples to ask, are you really the coming one? And coming one is one of the titles of Messiah. 
And it's interesting the way Jesus answered this. At first, you read this superficially, you might say, look, Jesus gives an evidential answer. Um, and of course, Jesus is, it is true, Jesus is citing, hey, I'm doing all these things. But just doing all these things don't mean you're the Messiah, unless the Old Testament, God's word himself, God himself in his word self-identified the Messiah. I think the background for this is really Isaiah chapter 6, 60, the and, uh, correction, Isaiah 61, the antecedent theology. I'm going to read this myself. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 61, where it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me. By the way, the word Messiah means anointed one, right? So he anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim release to captives and free to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And I'll stop there. I know it goes on. Um, I think when the day of vengeance comes, that's going to be his second coming. Everything from verse two, second line onward. But here, everything in verses one um, to the first part of verse two is really his first advent. Where when you look back again in Luke 7, what you read about how people had, had eyes were able to see, how people were cleansed, how even people have heard the gospel and have been liberated and freed. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is the Messiah. Is Jesus is not saying these things to signs out of the vacuum. It's really because John the Baptist was a prophet. He knows the Old Testament. In fact, he even knows that there was a forerunner in Isaiah 40. There was one prepared the way for the Messiah. So in light of all this, I think you cannot just say Jesus was just doing evidence signed out of a vacuum. Jesus was not in a, Jesus was not giving evidences as a guy that is um, someone that is assuming moder- um, modernity or um, a human view of metaphysics. He was not giving these evidence. He was not even giving these evidences with, you know, foundationalists or, or uh, metaphysics uh, physics or a postmodern outlook. He was giving in a very fully orbed biblical uh, theology, a biblical redemptive history is his philosophy as fact, is his philosophy of evidence that explains this. And I think it's important to see that the Old Testament is really the air that they breathe, that the commonality, the common ground that John the Baptist and Jesus and his disciples between them have is the Old Testament itself. So I think we must never look at this and say, oh, look, guys, he's evidentialist. No, it's not just he's giving evidence, but the background, the prerequisite for the Messiah fulfilled was given by God, listed in Isaiah 61. So we interpret his signs even like the Old Testament. Mm. So that's all our evidences that we see as examples of how the Old Testament is, as a biblical theology, interpret the evidences even more profoundly showing Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing to him just reassuring John the Baptist, like just really just requoting scripture uh, to John the Baptist saying, hey, this is certain. This is certainly what is going on. And I'm going to read this off to you and say, hey, you you remember, you know, the scriptures and that's what's happening. And uh, once again, Jesus gives you that perspective, the right perspective in which you should look at the world you live in and look at who God is. And his word and and how you interpret it as well. So, yeah, that's all. Uh, yeah, we got uh, uh, you want me to, the last question we have yes. for you, uh, Jimmy, how does this change our life? Yeah, and that's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, I'd like you chip in with this, too. Um, for me, I feel um, our apologetics, it is done for the glory of God. And I know that's John Frame's book title is Apologetics to the Glory of God. Um, I hope it really is apologetics to the glory of God. And one of the ways to practice 
could make it glory to God. I think from all this Old Testament stuff is if it, if it becomes Christ-centered, it would become doxological. Um, certainly for me, I'm getting like a spiritual high, so to speak, you know, just being in this word, the beauty, glory, and majesty of the precious gem of the prophecies in the Old Testament that Christ fulfilled. So for me, I think that one of the applications, how does this apply is this makes me more confident that the word is true. Christ is true as my savior, but also makes me love him more and practically leads me to worship. That's one of the applications. Amen. Yeah, I, I you know, if, if listeners, you don't know what doxological means, it, it's simply just saying it, it it's uh, our Adam, uh, adoration or worship uh, towards God. You know, a lot of people say, you know, theology should always lead to doxology. Uh, in other words, that means in layman's terms, reading your Bible and studying it should always lead you to worship the God who's written it. Um, would be a good way. I mean, that's what it does for me. I, I'm right there with you, Jimmy. When I get in uh, talking about these things, and it, it's in a strange way emotional for me, in a joyful way. It's just, you know, when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and and you see the richness and beauty of who Christ is through His Word, and and that's what the Holy Spirit's uh, one of His His functions and and roles is is to say, look look to Christ, look at how beautiful He is, be you know, be changed by Him, be like Him, love Him, and uh, I think of Peter, you know, even though you have not seen Him, you you love Him, and um and and that's you know, what these things do for me, you know, it changes my life to see the beauty and glory of our savior. It makes me want to love him and serve him with all my life. And if that means uh, losing and selling my house for the greater good of the kingdom, that I may suffer here to be caught up with him, it's worth it. No matter what happens uh, and no matter what the Lord would call us to do, he is so utterly worth it. And, and the most, uh, you know, people that have serve the Lord most wholeheartedly or people that truly knew God and loved him. Uh, the more we know and love God, the more that, you know, the sin that so easily entangles us falls by the wayside. And, and we, we pick up our crosses and we, we accept the call, the costly call, but, but yet it doesn't feel all that costly as we do it because, you know, it's, uh, what's, what's Jesus say, uh, uh, when you lose your life, you find it. Um, and that's a beautiful reality is, you really do. When you, you know, you turn away from sin and repentance and faith in Christ, you truly do experience finding your life. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's some, some things that come to my mind. And, and, but the main thing is just uh, utter worship. Um, uh, it's, it's like the Romans eight experience of, you know, words too deep uh, that you just mm -hmm. groan inwardly of, of praise and, and, and the Holy Spirit helps us because we, we can't even find the words to express our gratitude and our, uh, our joy towards him um, and our worship of him. Yeah, I think another application I, I just got from all this is, man, let us uh, continue to study the Old mm. Testament. Uh, I know uh, we probably, most of us as believers, read more than New Testament. But let it be that as another application, let's go in depth to study, to experience all those joy that you mentioned just right now of our salvation and what he's done and the glory of God, um, which will transform us. Uh, so I like earlier, this is picking back up what you mentioned earlier about how, how do we deal with sanctification is we got to worship him. Um, John Owen has talked about second Corinthians 318 about how the more we behold his glory, the more we are transformed. So it does, it actually sanctifies. us. So I think part of sometimes the way we fight idols is if we just only say, don't eat or chew or go out with boys and girls that do, um, we would never fight that sin. I think the way we do that is 
we need to defeat sin in our mind, the temptation. Temptation paints us a really nice ad that sin is airbrushed all nice. And we fantasize and we think about it. And sometimes it's just this moment, even right now, I'm being sanctified just because I'm just seeing the beauty and glory, even what you're sharing, some of those passages, right? Like, wow, he's so beautiful and glorious. Then that, at that moment, you just feel like, why would I go for something cheap and fake? So I think that's to do this for sanctification. It's not just only apologetics, but also our sanctification is why we want to go in depth with the word of God in the Old Testament and, and read G.K. Beale and all these um, biblical theology guys. Again, they're not God's word, but they help us as teacher. God gives us teacher to help us see more of his riches and his glory. Mm, amen. Amen, Jimmy. Um, hey, Jimmy, if, if, if someone would be interested maybe in kind of, you know, maybe getting very excited about this podcast and, and very encouraged by it, um, what, what would be some recommendations that you would have for for some people that kind of get them introduced to this topic of biblical theology and and um, these ideas that we've uh, spoken to? Oh wow! Okay, you caught me off guard. Um, I'm gonna hit. I know it's not on the script, but hey, it's <laughs> yeah. a good question. I mean, uh, while you're looking, I, I mean, I'll mention I'll mention a few that um, that I've been currently actually using part of my devotional Bible reading. Um, that my my pastors encouraged me to do, and I think he, he's actually doing it with me. Shout out to uh, Pastor Jonathan Hunt, love you, brother. Um, very encouraged by your faith and uh, and your shepherding of the flock. And but so one of those books is is called The Story Retold um, mm-hmm. by G.K. Beale and Benjamin Glad. You can find that on you know wherever. Um, I mean. I, I personally like to buy from a Christian publisher websites, uh, or even if you have local bookstores, go support them as well. Um, but you can get that. Um, and that's a, it's a, called a biblical theological introduction to the new Testament. And what that book will do will help kind of navigate you. Um, and it can kind of summarized fashion of, of all, uh, uh, how the old Testament relates to the new and vice versa. Um, so that's one, uh, you could look at, um, and now if you're maybe a little more intermediate or something like that, uh, you know, you have G.K. Beale's The Temple, and I think it's called The Temple, and uh, The Church's Mission is another good one. And if you want a really, you know, simple intro too, you could check out God Dwells Among Us by, um, I think that's Beale and Kim, uh, which is a really good uh, book when just kind of introducing you to the grand narrative of, of, of the story of the Bible. And I mean, obviously you have Jahardis Voss, Biblical theology, the Old and New Testaments. You have Richard Gaffin and his Reformed dogmatics of translating Voss. You, I mean, honestly, there's. I mean, I don't want to overwhelm you, listeners. So I'll just give you a couple, and then uh, see the people that endorse them. Uh, look at and see uh, the footnotes for these people, and you'll you'll be able to find even more material if you uh, continue getting caught up with that. But uh, Jimmy, how about you overwhelm them a little more? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You recommended uh, a lot of the classics, so I just want to, you know, uh, reinforce what you mentioned. Um, these are just other titles. Um, these are some of the more newer ones. Uh, I always thought it was a good introduction, a booklet by a book, uh, a short book by James Hamilton uh, called What is Biblical Theology? I think that's uh, preliminary, just, you know, just getting an idea what is biblical theology. Of course, uh, Boss is the classic, um, but if you feel it takes so long to read that, um, and then uh, what I really like a lot is, uh, again, I'm just thinking of this more pastorally too, if there's someone uh, short on time and you want to see a lot of these things. Uh, Crossway has a series and I actually, uh, I'm trying to, I don't remember what it was called. I'm trying to look at my blog with the name of it. 
um, the books, but they're, I think they're called short biblical theology. Mm -hmm. um, so they've actually invited different guys um, that are like GK Beale and things like that um, to write like within, I think no, none of the book is more than 160 pages. They're all uh, 200 pages or less. They kind of summarize um, some of the um, biblical theology finding where they've written maybe really big works and then they uh, are asked to write shorter. I can't, let me. Um, yeah, it's called uh, Short Studies in Biblical Theology. Uh, that's studies. what the series is called. And you can find that on crossway.org, which is a Christian publishing book. So if, if you guys, the listeners or whoever would just type in, you know, short studies of biblical theology and type in crossway afterwards, it will bring you to a link that will give you access to um, uh, a whole bunch of them. There's a ton yeah. of them, you know, there's one on uh, marriage and the mystery yeah. of the gospel covenant and God's purpose for the world work and our labor in the Lord, uh, the city of God, the goal of creation. I mean, these just a list a few, there's a whole uh, series. I mean, you could buy the whole set, probably get a better deal or buy them individually as you read them. Yeah. So yeah, those, those are wonderful series. The ones that stood out to me from that series is the one on marriage. I thought was really excellent uh, and probably really relevant for our today when our confusion with gender and, and marriage and stuff like that redefinition. Um, so Ray Ortland, I believe was the author. He did a good job. I really like the one on the city of God also as well. Um, that was a good one. There's one by on irony. Um, I don't remember the, I'm so old. Uh, that, uh, yeah. GK Beale. GK redemptive Beale. reversals yeah redemptive reversals that gk beale that um i in the past um uh, yeah so gk beale that one was really good i think that was the gold standard in my opinion of, of the series um sometimes i think with some of these things i encourage also readers to maybe venture out a little bit when you read books if i mentioned journal articles um I'll, I'll, I'll make a confession that i'm really sad to admit um, I have not really read as many G.K. Beale's book, but I felt like I've read more of his journal articles for his academic journal articles. So sometimes I think that is there's a place for that. Um, for instance, G.K. Beale, I really like his one of his journal with Evangelical Theological Society. He has a journal article talking about how Hosea 11, you know, that passage where um, Matthew quotes about out of Egypt, I call my son. And there's a lot of debate. Some people say, is it typology? Is that Hosea didn't mean what it means, New Testament views it. He makes a very strong argument, one of the best I've ever seen, to say that Hosea, within the book of Hosea, was actually predicting there's going to be a second Exodus theme, a new Exodus theme. Um, and he argues from it very well, exegetically, that was actually the authority intent. So some of these things I encourage you guys, yeah, to dig, even when you see footnotes. And we live in a day and age where sometimes when you Google, you could actually find the actual articles. It's not like maybe even 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, where you have to go to seminary library to find it, and maybe there's a PDF, you'll pay a lot of money. Sometimes, um, as different journal articles make more things available, these are great rabbit trails to, to find these richness also as well. So that's further resource to drown the readers. Yeah, yeah. Praise God. So listeners, uh, I'll do my best to try to get most of these links put in uh, the description of this podcast for you. Um, if for some weird reason I forget, because that's definitely very possible. I'm, I'm pretty impulsive and forgetful and reactive in life. So if I don't, uh, just please re-listen to this little end clip here with me and Jimmy talking about our recommendations and some good material out there for you guys to check out. Um, yeah, this is exciting, man. I mean, praise God, Jimmy. Thank you so much uh, for doing this with us. 
Um, you're always such a, a great delight and a brother. I'd love to have one. And I, I hope you continue, Lord willing, to continue to come on and, and share whatever's on your heart and whatever you're kind of nerding out about and thinking about. We'd love to have you, Jimmy. Um, I know a lot of listeners have uh, said they greatly appreciated you coming and talking about prayer. I've personal people have come and, and told me how grateful they were for that and helpful it was. So um, just thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for uh, serving the Lord in your local congregation and being the shepherd that God's called you to be there. Um, I pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you and, and God would continue to use you the way he is. I don't know how you do it all. Uh, you seem to be doing so much, but God's given you uh, a motivation and uh, grace to do all that he's called you to. I just want to encourage you, brother. We're just so grateful for what you're doing, not only for for us here as the listeners, but also for, you know, like I mentioned, your church, but also for reform presuppositional apologetics and also your blog um, listeners. I'll definitely link that in the description as well, where you can find his blog and check out. I mean, he has a ton of stuff. He's, he's the prototype or the typology of uh, Steve Hayes. So you can go check him out <laughs> or something like that. And um, deeply drink uh, from all that he's put out there for you guys. So thank you, Jimmy. Love you, brother. Thank you, Nate. Thank you. It's always an honor to be on your show. Uh, I know there's many people you've invited, far more scholarly. I just consider it just a great privilege just to be able to serve. Hopefully, you know, other brothers edify and to evangelize. Um, mm. Thank you. Amen. Yeah. And uh, we're all on the same team. We're all brothers and sisters. Uh, nobody's going to be uh, at a higher ranking in glory. Only the Lord Jesus will get the crowns thrown at him. So whether you're John Frame or Jimmy Lee, Whoever you are, we're all in the same boat and going in the same direction. And we praise God for that, right? All right. Yeah. Um, until next time, this is Rooted in Revelation podcast, where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation. And until next time, we love you guys. Thanks for continually, uh, continually listening. And uh, hopefully we'll get Jimmy back, Lord willing. And praise God. Have a good night.